Welcome to Friendly Words, a sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The message you're about to hear was originally preached at Pratt Friends Church on Sunday, June 20th, 2021. It focuses on Jesus' instructions concerning dealing with sin and conflict. The message to all who will listen is following Jesus' way leads to peace and reconciliation. Now, here is Pastor Mike Neifert. I want to invite you to pray with me and to ask God to speak to you and to encourage you through his word, because every time we come to God's word, we want to come submitted to God, to hear from him. It's not to hear from anybody else, but to hear from God himself. So let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are here and that your presence is all we need. You are life. And we are here to receive life from your spirit and to receive truth and to be corrected if we need it and to be trained in righteousness. And God, we're here for that. So please do your work. We know that you're going to accomplish your purposes. And so we trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So a few weeks ago, I ran across an amazing story in which a father helped his daughters patch things up after a rift had opened between them over what seems like a fairly small offense, but you know how things get blown out of proportion. It's happened to you, right? You've gotten offended by things that in the end weren't all that big a deal. There's a story, and it's from the book, Misreading Scripture Through Individualist Eyes. And so I want you to pay attention to how the conflict arises and how it's resolved, and note the wisdom of the Father as he does the important godly work of peacemaking. Amira's husband works for a company in the Gulf. He makes a lot of money. Amira's sister, Miriam, married a painter. Miriam's family is not well off, so Amira passes on to Miriam lots of her used clothing. There was a big family wedding, so Amira came back from the Gulf. As the family were sitting around talking excitedly about the wedding, Miriam said she was planning to get herself a new dress. Amira laughed and said, oh, so this time you're going to buy your own clothes. Miriam was very upset with her sister, but she didn't show it then and there. Over the next week, though, as Miriam and Amira messaged on the phone, Miriam accused her sister of saying cruel things. Amira felt shame, but couldn't remember what she could have said to cause it. They quit talking to each other. Whew. You ever had that happen to your family? A few days later, Miriam's dad came to Miriam's house. He said, Miriam, my love, I know you're upset with your sister. She replied that she was not upset with her sister. The next week, Miriam's dad came around again and he said, come on, get the kids ready and come to our house. Your mom and I have cooked your favorite dinner. Miriam dressed and went to her parents' home. Her sister was there, of course. She didn't want to enter, but her dad said, for my sake, because you love me, come in and eat. She should eat with her father because he's her father, and especially since he and her mom had troubled to prepare a special meal. Over the meal, Miriam talked with her sister. Her sister said she was sorry. So did Miriam. They both cried, and the family was restored. Don't you love that story? It's the way things are supposed to work, except for the offense part of the beginning. But, you know, when we have conflict, that's the way it's supposed to work. We either work things out together or we have this mediator that comes in and helps us work things out. 
What a great dad. I mean, he did all the right things using just a smidge of social pressure to bring his girls back together so that they could resolve their conflict. You know, we hear the word shame, and we almost always have this negative feeling when we hear the word shame, but sometimes shame used in the right context can bring about good things, can't it? Sometimes that kind of pressure from a dad or from a mom or from a sibling can work miracles in restoring relationships. Well, the culture in which Jesus lived was a culture which knew how to use this kind of pressure constructively to restore relationships which had been torn asunder and to make sure that everyone was following after the rules and the mores and, you know, the cultural expectations of the town. Chapter 18 of Matthew is full of words from Jesus about how in difficult situations, citizens of his kingdom can bring fellow believers in line with the values of that kingdom. Like Amira and Miriam's father, Jesus directs his followers down the right path, the path which brings unity rather than division. So the chapter begins with a question from Jesus' disciples about greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Let me read the first five verses of chapter 18 for you. It's here that we're going to get the question and hear Jesus' response to it. Starting at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change... And become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So the greatest person in God's kingdom, the greatest citizen of the kingdom of heaven, is not all that great in the world's eyes. We love kids, but we don't think of them in terms of greatness, do we? They're kids, not all that wise or knowledgeable or strong, but also, on the flip side, not all that arrogant and prideful and pretentious either. That's adult stuff. Is there a hint in Jesus' words that his followers who are asking about who's greatest, and I'm pretty sure they all thought they were the greatest, isn't there a hint there that he's telling his followers that perhaps they need a little humility? Lowliness, humility, is a virtue in God's kingdom. Thinking more of others than yourself, submitting to God as king. And why is this lowliness so important? It's because when we're looking to God as king and submitting to him, and when we're looking out for the needs of others rather than for our own interests, we care better for one another, don't we? Are you lowly enough to serve and love and give? Our church fellowship, our witness in the world will be much stronger if you and I and every other believer lives generously caring for others as we submit to the rule of our king who tells us to love our enemies as ourselves. All right. Let's move on to verses 6 through 9. Jesus is speaking still, this whole chapter, Jesus is speaking except for little little interspersed questions from 
first the disciples and then Peter in a little bit. We'll get to that. So here's Jesus. He says in verse six, if anyone causes one of these little ones, probably pointing to the kid who's with them, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Jesus uses just a bit of hyperbole here to make sure that his dual messages are crystal clear. What would be better than causing a kid to stumble? What would be better than causing a brother or sister in Christ to stumble? What would be better is having a large millstone hung around your neck and being thrown into the water and drowned. That's better than causing somebody else to stumble. Has he got your attention? I bet he had the disciples' attention. Causing a kid or a fellow believer to stumble is a serious offense in God's eyes. As adults, fathers, mothers, aunts, uncles, grandparents, coaches, teachers, pastors, whatever, we are responsible for the direction that we give to the children around us. We have to point them toward truth and God and righteous living. We must discipline and instruct. We must never encourage sin or misconduct. We don't wink and laugh at it when they do what's wrong in God's kingdom. Now, all this probably seems like common sense to you who have grown up in the church and heard God's word over and over, but it isn't common sense. There are more and more adults who, because cultural opinions are shifting on certain issues, are calling good what God's word calls evil and evil what God calls good. The world is saying things are true that are clearly false. Believers, we must be vigilant and fully teach the young ones under our care what kingdom life is like, not teaching them to judge others, but to discern what is true. Part of leading the young is watching your own actions. Jesus' words in the second part of this paragraph that we're considering shows us how serious sin is. Cutting off your hands or feet, gouging out an eye, maybe two, pretty drastic, right? But better than being thrown into hell, better than leading a young one astray, better than leading someone else to stumble, Obviously, Jesus is not telling us to hang millstones around people's necks and throw them into the ocean. He's not telling us to cut off hands and feet. This is a way of telling us how serious sin is. He is telling all who will hear to take sin seriously. Do you? Before we move on, let me remind you that our focus is this today. We are working on how to better relate to each other, how we can encourage righteousness and deal with differences and deal with sin. What have we seen so far? A humble spirit, a humble heart leads to peace and taking sin, which often harms others seriously. Those are things that God requires of his followers. Let's read the next verses and see what more Jesus has to say for us. We're starting at verse 10 now. 
Matthew 18, 10 to 14, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, probably pointing the kid again, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Jesus comes back to the kids. I'm guessing the one that he called to him in verse 2 is still standing there among the disciples. They're probably looking at him. Maybe he's a little nervous, but he's paying attention. Kids pay attention to what adults say, don't they? You find that out when you say things you shouldn't and they repeat them. So he's listening intently, and as he listens, he hears these words and knows that God cares for him. He hears that there's an angel watching over him and that that angel has God's ear. He hears Jesus say that the Father is not willing for him to perish, that he desires for him to follow after God. So if you're a child or a believer... Listen, God cares about you. If you have a child or a grandchild, hear this. God is watching over them. I cannot tell you that hardship will not come into their life, but I can say for sure that God cares. He cares for the little ones that you love more than you could ever care for them. And even if they're not still little, he still loves them and cares for them. And you can trust him with them. I've met a few people who seem to think that it's their job or their main concern in life to worry and worry and worry over their offspring and how they're turning out and all that kind of stuff. They think that they must protect them from all harm. They wear themselves out fretting and hovering and stewing and manipulating situations. How much better to continually release the care of each child to God who can take care of them when you are not around? He is for them. He does not want them to perish. He can search for them when they've wandered off. And if there's ever a time when you don't even know where they are, he does. They end up on the streets or in jail or whatever. God's there with them. You can't control those things. So turn them over to God over and over and over. If we're still talking about how to deal with sin... Taking your erring child to God is the way to peace for you and for them. Constant nagging, does it change anything? I've never seen it do much. And shouting rarely corrects well. So put your child in God's hands and trust him to do his best. It's his to convict and to transform. You can't do what is his to do, so just do what you've been given to do, and that is to trust him and pray for them and, and let him do his work. Do you have a wanderer in mind right now? Maybe a grandkid or a child or somebody you know? Pray for him. Pray for her. When you go home, keep praying. Day and night, every single time you think of your lost one, pray. Will everything turn out the way that you want to? Can't promise you that. Will God respond to your prayers? Yes. 
In fact, let's just pray right now for those who may be straying. If you have a child or a grandchild or a neighbor's kid that's come to mind, I want to invite you to stand to represent them before God and his church as we pray together for them. God, we thank you that you are in all places and that you leave the 99 to go after the one. And we're asking you this morning to go after these ones that we love, these ones that we care for, And God, that you would do your best in their life, that you would convict and transform and change their minds and their hearts to seek after you. Rescue them from falsehood and give them truth so they might live in your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, trust God with that kid, that person that you thought of. Keep praying, keep trusting, don't give up. God is still in the business of searching for sheep who have wandered off. Amen? Let's read a little bit more here. Verse 15 to 20. These next verses were actually what I was going to preach on the whole message because they're so good and so important, but I felt like the whole chapter kind of pulled us into the same thing. So this is going to show us how believers are to work toward reconciliation when there's sin involved that's possibly caused a rift in the relationship. So here's what 15 to 20 says. Matthew 18, starting at verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, and some translations say sins against you, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Conflict resolution, if you do it God's way, starts with a tough but necessary one-on-one conversation between two people. Two, not five, two. A sinner and a brother. The offender and a sister. If you want conflict to get better, this is where you begin. Friend-to-friend communication, speaking gently, seeking peace, using pressure in that good sense like we saw with that father bringing the daughters back together, but using pressure in a good sense to turn an erring one back to God's way. If you want things to go from bad to worse, start with a passive-aggressive post on Facebook. You've seen those. Or maybe if you want to increase aggravation, you could start with a little backstabbing text that you send to all your friends. Or you could call them up and say, you know what so-and-so did. No need to talk to the person that all you want to do is have everybody on your side or to be right. Shame them publicly, shame them widely. Kind of messes everything up, doesn't it? There are a hundred ways to ruin relationships. They all start by skipping Jesus' step one. 
Don't be a step skipper. Do what Jesus says. Start one-on-one. If this step works, no one ever need know that there was a sin or an offense or a difficulty or a disagreement in the first place. No one besides you and your fellow believer. This kind of action brings peace and builds trust. I have rarely had to move past step one when I've started there. I wish step one was always enough to patch things up, don't you? I think it should be enough among believers, but sometimes when we're at our worst, when we're stuck in our flesh, we won't listen to our friends when they tell us we're going the wrong way. We stubbornly cling to the fantasy that we're in the right, even when we've done what's clearly wrong and we refuse to repent. It's this kind of situation that the remaining steps address. If private conversation does not solve the problem, the next step is a slight escalation in the shame level. Now one or two more mature believers know what's happened. They quietly but firmly increase the pressure to return to God's ways. They encourage the process of restoration. The goal is still reconciliation with the least damage to reputation and relationship. If this step works, no one needs no beyond this little circle of three or four. And you notice that it doesn't say you have to go to this step immediately. If you think there's a little bit of progress the first time and it doesn't quite fix stuff up, you can still go back and talk again. There's no, like, one time and done. Okay? Same with this step. Perhaps we have to negotiate a few times until we get there. So don't be in a rush to expand the circle of those who know what's going on. I wish there wasn't a need for the next steps. I wish this because when the issue gets big enough to go beyond one-on-one or beyond that small two or three or four people, the tendency is for things to get really ugly. Really fast. The potential is there for long-term rifts. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure thinking about these latter stages is what makes most people fearful about confrontation and conflict. Imagining the possibility of forever being at odds with a friend causes believers to just shut up rather than speak up. Please don't shy away from steps one and two because things might have to move on to steps three or four. They rarely do, in my experience. When the initial steps are done well and gently and done in love by a trusted, believing friend. That said, let me be clear what I believe Jesus meant and what he does not mean when he says to take things to the church. He was not, I don't believe, suggesting that we shout out accusations in group gatherings like this. I don't think that's what he meant when he said take it to the church. I believe that he was speaking of taking things to the elders or spiritual leaders in the church when things have gotten out of hand. Wise, patient, discerning individuals are who you need to seek out. Am I right? They're the best help that you're going to get. In Jesus' day, 
in the culture, there was, if I understand correctly, this group of elders in every town, the heads of households who knew the community well and knew its values, who would meet at the gate of the city on a regular basis. And this group, called the ecclesia, was responsible for resolving disputes among families and neighbors and friends. That's the image I think that Jesus has when he gives this instruction. In fact, ecclesia is the word that's translated church here. So when he's talking about taking it to the church, as I said, it's not shouting out in a worship service, but taking it to those who have spiritual discernment, taking it to the wise. And I know that our ministry council is a group of people like that. So if you get to this point, I think that you're going to find a kind and compassionate sounding board if it comes to this, people who will listen and help you and your friend in conflict. They'll listen and help without spreading word outside of this third step meeting for reconciliation. And what about Jesus' last step? What does it mean to treat an unrepentant sinner like a pagan or a tax collector? What does that look like? Going back to the book which we received our opening story about our Amira and Miriam and their dad, going back to that book, we find this After quoting verse 17, the authors of misreading scripture through individualist eyes write this. When talking about the sinner who won't repent, he says, treat him like he's no longer a member of the community. This brother's sin is not an individual problem. That's how we think of it a lot of times, but it's not. He is not just pulling himself away from the center of group. He is pulling the group off center. An unrepentant member endangers the group. And it's not just the group's reputation at risk. Even our culture recognizes that one bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. This person's behavior could contaminate and mislead others in the group. Our group could become confused about what our values are. Could it be the church today has become confused about its values? I think it's possible. We seem to see more and more churches and their pastors taking their cues from the culture rather than from God's word, celebrating sinful behavior rather than calling sinners to repentance. Individuals are rarely called to account even one-on-one. They're rarely confronted by wise helpers or by the elders of the church. They go on their merry way sinning and sinning and sinning some more. This is not how the kingdom of heaven is supposed to work. In the kingdom over which Jesus rules, sin, behavior which does not reflect the kingdom's values and which we've already established should be taken seriously, is dealt with privately, one-on-one first, so that it can be nipped in the bud. It is dealt with publicly as a last resort so that there's no confusion either inside the church nor outside it about the values of the kingdom. God help us to follow his way. The church today is confusing the daylights out of both itself and the world in many areas. There's so much more we could say, but we're going to move on. Enough about those steps. We've got one more section to cover before we go this morning. It's a little bit longer section, so listen to how Peter responds after hearing Jesus' directives concerning dealing with conflict and sin. Beginning at verse 21 and reading to the end of the chapter, this is what we have. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. 
Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Peter understood the implications of Jesus' four-step process. If he confronted a sinning brother and the man repented, forgiveness would be required. Or if it took more steps. But as long as there was repentance, forgiveness was required. No grudge could be held against a sister if she listened to a gentle rebuke. Perhaps a little disturbed by this, he asked about the limits of this confrontation leads to repentance, leads to forgiveness things. His question is, do we have to keep forgiving the person who keeps doing the wrong thing? Is there a limit? Is there? Not really. And I know Jesus threw out this 77 times, but I don't think he's giving us a hard and fast number. I don't think that there's any implication that forgiveness can be withheld after the 78th offense. Can you even keep track? Instead, I think Jesus intended Peter and all the rest of us to understand that grace gives and gives and gives and gives and gives some more. It never skips step one. It never jumps to step four without an attempt to smooth things over in whatever way is possible. Everything is done to bring about peace. Believers always chase after peace, always seek reconciliation. Even after step four, Christ followers wish for the return of that erring sinner and pray for them. Isn't that what we desire, is for all to come to Christ? Jesus said that the Father does not want anybody to perish, so why would we be any different if the Spirit of God lives in us? Friends, we keep giving more grace than is reasonable because we've been given more grace than we deserve. Can I say that again? We keep giving more grace than is reasonable because we've been given more grace than we deserve. That's what the servant story is about. Jesus is telling Peter and all who will pay attention that God's forgiveness is complete even though our sin is a great offense to him. He forgives every sin when we believe, when we confess, when we trust him for our salvation. How then can we not over and over and over again forgive those little offenses, those little sins against us? 
the debt we are owed is much smaller than the one that God has canceled. So, the citizen of the kingdom of heaven is lowly like a child because he knows he needs grace. The citizen of the kingdom of heaven does everything that she can to keep from causing another to stumble. She watches her own life carefully, following after God. The citizen of the kingdom of heaven gently corrects an erring brother so that they won't wander from the truth. The believer repents when confronted. The believer forgives quickly and repeatedly because he's been shown such amazing grace. The citizen of the kingdom of heaven seeks reconciliation and rejoices when it comes. What do you need to do in response to God's word to you today? Were you corrected, rebuked, and repent? Were you instructed or trained in righteousness? Submit to what God has said to you. Does forgiveness need to happen? Sometimes we hang on to stuff far too long. Stop it. Forgive. Choose grace because you've been given grace. So whatever it is that you need to do today, I want to invite you to do it now, to talk with God and to listen to him, to hear what his next instruction is for you when you leave this place. Pay attention. Let him do his work in you as we pause for just a few moments of silent reflection. We give this opportunity every week because it's important that when we come to God's word, we actually respond to it. doesn't do any good to hear it and change nothing. So if God's telling you to change something, trust that his spirit can and will change that in you when you submit to him. You've received grace, give it. So let's just take a few moments in silence and allow God to speak to us, talk to God, find out what he's got for you, and then be prepared to be obedient. God, we confess that we have received more grace than, than we can even imagine. And that sometimes we don't pass that on. Forgive us. We repent of our wrongdoing. God, give us a humble heart that looks out for the needs of others and watches over them. And, and God, help us to say the things that are true and right and to train those under our care with truth instead of falsehood. Guard our doctrine. Guard our hearts so that we don't follow after the culture of the world instead of the culture of your kingdom. God, whatever it is that you have for us to do today, help us to be aware of it and to be obedient to your voice. We thank you for your spirit's presence in our lives everywhere that we go and that when we wander off that you chase us down and bring us back. God, if we're wandering at all, if we're unforgiving or unwilling to listen to truth, I pray, God, that you would bring us to repentance this week, in this moment, that your spirit would convict and that you would transform our lives and bring us back to the center of your kingdom. 
the kingdom where you're king and we're not. We confess that sometimes we think we're in charge when it's really you. Thanks for your direction. Thanks for your word and for your spirit's work in us. Keep working on us. Keep showing us grace and help us to do the same with others. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.